chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. We have been slowly working our way through this first chapter of 1 Peter. I'm not sure if we'll go through the whole book. Uh, we might. I don't know. We'll just see, see where we get to... Uh, see how far we get and where the Lord leads us. But for right now, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. May God add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures. We spoke a few weeks ago about born-again living, that we are born again to a living hope. In fact, Peter, throughout the first, almost the first half of chapter 1, talks about this uh, being born again. And then he comes to verse 13, and we have that big therefore. And so every time we see a therefore, we pause for a moment because it it is a word that points our direction or our attention backwards and then gives us something uh, to follow, points ahead to something uh, that we ought to do. And uh, so here, this therefore looks back at the living hope, uh, at the lasting inheritance that we have, and then the loving protection of our Heavenly Father. He also talks for a little bit in verses 10 through 12 about the privileged perspective that we enjoy as New Testament Christians. Now understand, I'm not uh, what you would properly call a dispensationalist. Uh, However, I do believe there are dispensations of time throughout history, and uh, I believe anybody at any point in time can be a a Christian, Um, but we have a privileged perspective because of the time in history that we live. Verses 10 through 12, Peter talks about those prophets who went before and that they inquired carefully, wanting to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Uh, And that's verse 11. Then verse 12, it was revealed to them, they were serving not themselves but you. And so we, living in this time, we have the privileged perspective uh, of knowing that Jesus uh, has come, God in the form of man. He went to the cross. He gave himself there as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then three days later, he rose again. And it is through his death and uh, the sufferings and his resurrection that we can have life, that we can be born again, as Jesus told to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. 
Then we come to the instructions that follow that therefore. This is what we spoke of, I believe, two, two weeks ago today. Uh, therefore, he says, prepare for action, be sober, and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, we can know right now that we are saved, but our salvation is not complete. Is everybody okay? Our salvation will not be complete until Jesus comes back and we are, the, the dead in Christ are raised first and the church is raptured. And I'm not going to get into eschatology in times and, and talk about how we think all of that's going to play out. Um, I, I have my opinions. Some of you probably have your opinions. They may not be the same, and that's okay. Uh, the main point is uh, that Jesus is going to come back. Someday, we need to be ready for him when he does. And our salvation is not complete until that time, until we find ourselves at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven uh, with God, with Jesus, and with the rest of the saints of all time. As Christians now, what are we to do? Well, Peter is saying in light of the fact that we have this living hope, we have the lasting inheritance and the loving protection, we are to prepare for action. Be sober-minded and set your hopes fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that time when our salvation is complete. So the question I have for you this morning is, what does that look like? In other words, if a person is truly born again, and he engages into discipleship of Jesus, following Jesus Christ, in other words, I've got to be careful because there are all kinds of rabbit trails I could follow. Um, you understand that many people in the day and age that we live in see this being born again as a transactional uh, uh, experience only that doesn't seem to have anything to do with how they live their lives after that point. Can I just tell you that biblical salvation does not look like that? Biblical salvation is more than just a, a transactional uh, relationship, something that happens one time. We, we say a prayer, and then we say, okay, I've got my ticket stamped, and I'm okay. I just wait to go to heaven. No, biblical salvation, it, is, it does begin with that transaction, but at the moment uh, that transaction takes place, we experience the new birth, and then we enter into a uh, a relationship that is really an apprenticeship with Jesus. That's what discipleship is. It's being apprenticed to Jesus, being with him, learning his ways, and then following him, learning how to live like Jesus. So what is, what is the born-again change look like? The person that has been born again, what does that look like? And, and that's what we're looking at as we pick up from uh, verse 14 through 16. I, I think of it like a, a, a child um, that is anticipating the holidays. Um, 
you know, the child that they, they've come through summer vacation and school has started again. And so they're, they're no longer living for summer free time, play time. They are engaged in the, the daily grind of school and homework and chores. And during that time, they're, they're living for the few fleeting moments of free time in between the daily grind. Uh, I, I wish you could have been at Youth Challenge a few weeks ago. Uh, Brother Avery was the keynote speaker, and he was addressing these young high school and, and college-age kids and telling them, you know, you think you're busy now. And he said, you, you will never have any more time than you have right now. Uh, it's interesting how busy school-age, college-age kids uh, think they are. It can be busy, but never gets any easier, never gets any better. But go back to the mind of that child. Maybe you can think with me and imagine. I don't know. For me, when I was a child, it it started with the wish book. Anybody ever get the wish book in your house? You know what I'm talking about? The J.C. Penney's Penney's Christmas catalog or the Sears uh, uh, Christmas wish book. And I remember either at my house uh, or at my grandparents' house when when that would come in the mail. And I, I don't know actually how long a time but it seemed like I as a child I could just sit for you know at least minutes on end um, and and just thumb through the Christmas catalog and dream about Christmas coming and then the time I don't know I hear people uh, there's controversy at my house about this but we don't allow Christmas music until after Thanksgiving and uh uh, that's Thanksgiving has to be passed, and I hear, I see people, friends, they, they start listening to their Christmas music in, I don't know, September, October, and I think that's, that's way too early. Can't be listening to the Christmas music yet. Amen. Thank you for that support. Um, but at some point, there's a realization that Christmas is coming, and for the child, there's, there's nothing more exciting. And that gives that child something to live for, something to, to look forward to, to anticipate. They begin to have a vested interest in being good. You know, now I never did grow up being told that Santa Claus was watching and so I needed to be good. I, I wasn't told that. I was always told, well, mom and dad were, were Santa Claus, you know, that, that kind of thing. And we never believed in that uh, type of thing, but um, I hope there are no really young kids here. I was hoping I didn't want to shatter anybody's <laughs> dreams or expectations. Anyway, um, but you, have, you still, you know, you hope for Christmas morning to be good and to, to get at least some of what you have wished for. So you have a vested interest in being good and behaving yourself and something to live for. Something you just grind through the homework and you get it done and you just can't wait for Christmas break. Till that day that you can wake up, you don't have to go to school. And then the next thing is, is you know, time visiting with family and all of that. Something to live for. That would the would would church would the Christian life be any different 
Would we live our lives any differently as Christians if we lived with that kind of anticipation? I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I wish that for more of us as Christians, we had that sense of anticipation for the future, like a child anticipating Christmas who they just, oh, they, they can't wait to just give something to live for, something to hope for, and, and they know it's going to be good. They know it's going to be good. And as Christians, that ought to be our attitude, and I believe this is a little bit uh, of what Peter is talking about here. Uh, let's look at it for a few moments. He begins in verse 14 with giving us this picture of what this looks like. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So, so the born-again change, the born-again life, first looks like obedient children. It looks like obedient children. Now, there is something in children that we see occasionally that lets us know that this creature is not too far removed from a wild animal. And that if we deprive them of what they want, uh, they can easily turn savage and let you know that they aren't getting what, they're want, what they want, and they aren't happy about it. And that's, that's not the character trait I'm talking about. That's not the character trait that Peter is talking about in this passage of Scripture. While, as I said, the, the savagery of the sin nature that we are born with, you know, I've said before, you can't help it that you have it. You are born with it. It's not our fault that we have it. It's your fault if you keep it, but it's, it's not our fault that we have it. Um, and while the savagery of the sin nature is sometimes easy to see in children, it's also sometimes easy to see the qualities of the divine nature in children. Now, some of you may think you don't know what I'm talking about, but I, I think this is what Jesus was pointing out when he said that to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must become as a little child. And I, and I think this is what Peter is getting at. Think for a moment about the child that is growing up and coming up in a, in a loving atmosphere where they are cared for, their needs are provided for, and they have, they have an interest in learning. They, are, they learn, now they wouldn't express it in those words, they don't know to express it in those words, but they just, at a certain age, children are just absorbing everything like a sponge and just soaking it all in, soaking it all in an interest in learning. And then as they learn, there is emulation. In other words, they copy the things that they are learning. And then along with that, there is often a desire to please. Yes, I know there is that side of the sin nature that expresses itself sometimes, but at the same time, there is often in children a desire to please. 
a desire to make their authority figures happy, those ones that, that love them. Uh, I was looking a, a little bit, uh, doing a little bit of research about this, and I found uh, that um, babies are born with about 100 billion brain cells, which is about the same number that humans have throughout their entire lives. What you're born with is about what you have throughout your whole life. What does change, though, is something that has to do with what is called brain plasticity. Brain plasticity, bleh, plasticity that's hard to say. Um, the main reason that children seem to learn more quickly and more easily than adults does not have to do with the number of neurons, but it has to do with the, the connections between the neurons that are being made. Newborns have very few synapses that are connecting neurons, but by age two or three, they go through a period called exuberant synaptogenesis. Let me say that 10 times real fast. Exuberant synaptogenesis, where during this time, they have more than twice as many connections, neurons and synapses connecting, twice as many as adults do. You see, what happens in adults is there, there is physiologically, scientifically, something to this, uh, this phrase that we use very often about us being set in our ways and that old dogs can't learn new tricks, that kind of thing. Well, what happens is as we, as we grow older, our brains get accustomed to thinking a particular way, and those connections that are used most often are, are maintained, and the connections that we fail to keep using are, are lost. So, as a child becomes an adult, their brain becomes more efficient, different parts of the brain being connected a long way apart. Um, early stages of neural development, the brain has this plasticity, and as a result, children seem to absorb everything around them. Language, usually one of the most notable examples. And when a baby hears speech, the neurons in the relevant parts of its brain form connections, synapses, they, they connect. And the more they hear speech, the stronger those connections become. And their vocabulary quadruples in size between the ages of one and two. In the back of my mind, I hear Paul speaking in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, saying, Be therefore imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, though in our physical material brain we, we may not have the plasticity that we spoke of just a moment ago, where like the little the newborn growing into the toddler learning how to talk, and, and you see how just they pick things up, and you don't know where are they learning all this from. And it's just they're absorbing like a sponge. God teaches us through His Word that our spirit, 
ought to maintain that kind of a willingness to learn and absorb spiritual truth, a spiritual hunger where we never get to the place spiritually where we are so set in our ways that we're not able to back up, we're not able to to receive a, a fresh understanding of God or of His Word. Now understand, I'm not talking about anything that is a new revelation different from from what this book says. Spiritual truth and revelation will always be conformed to the Word of God. However, there are times when there ought to be times regularly in all of our lives as we read through God's Word and, and God speaks to us or He speaks to us through a sermon or through a song and a light bulb uh, comes on in our head and we say, ah, oh, I've, I've never thought of that or I've never realized that. And, and we make a connection that we had not made before. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So, so the first thing is that a newborn change or a born-again change looks like an obedient child, looks like obedient children. The, the next thing that it looks like is that it looks different from your former life. It looks different from your former life. Again, verse 14, 1 Peter chapter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So what does your former life look like? Some of us, if, you, if you're like me, you grew up in a Christian home where you were taught to be obedient from a, from a very young age. And so there are, um, there are times when it's difficult to, to differentiate the saved life from the unsaved life because you just, you know, you grew up in church, you kind of you grew up a Christian. Now, I'm not saying anything doctrinally or theologically about that. I understand, I know there's a point in every person's life when they must be born again. But for some of us, there, there's uh, not a clear line of demarcation. So what could we say that's true about everybody that differentiates their unsaved life from their saved life or their born-again life? And I think it's simply this. The, the trademark characteristic of the unsaved person is self-centeredness. They, I, I read this quote about a lady, should probably say a woman, named Edith. Nobody named Edith here, is there? All right, I'm safe. Um, because if there was, I wouldn't be talking about you, and I, I don't even know who this Edith is, but the, a, a quote I read about her uh, said, Edith lived in a little world bounded on the north, south, east, and west by Edith. Did you hear that? She lived in a little world bounded on the north, south, east, and west by herself. In other words, she was the center of her universe, and she understood that her value system and the way she lived her life, it's all about me. 
It's all about me. And that is the, the trademark characteristic of the sin nature and the person that lives out their life without any suppression of that nature, that's their, their life is characterized by self-centeredness. And if you think about it, it's something, and I believe that can be taken care of. God can help us. I believe this is what Paul calls us to in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, and living in that position of the sacrificed uh, uh, life um, makes God the center of our universe, and he's, he's in control. He's running the show. But yet, there continues to be something at times that wants to exert itself, and the self-life wants to take control. Why is it that so many people, so many of us, and I'm going to include myself in this, have a tendency to want to top each other with our stories? Now you think about it, and, and if you have never thought about it or never paid attention, just start paying attention to yourself. Start paying attention to those around you, and when stories are being told, or when someone is talking about their organ, they're giving their organ recital. How many of you know what an organ recital is? Okay. You're talking about all of the problems that you've had, all of the injuries or whatever, and, and so many people want to have a tendency to want to top the person. Oh, yeah, well, let me tell you what happened to me. And it's just this this, we almost do it without thinking. Well, the born-again life, the change that comes in the life of the person that's born again, is it is different from your former life. It is a life that is shaped or conformed, not by our self-centered nature, but rather by a nature that is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It is shaped, it is a, a life, a new life that is not conformed to our passions. King James Version there says lusts, and often when we hear the word lust, we automatically think of something that is sexual in nature, and it could be that, but it doesn't have to be that. It's really just any overwhelming desire that we give ourselves in the pursuit of our passions, and one of the things that characterizes the life of the self-centered, not-born-again person, and they may have passions and desires that are no big deal compared to the, the really sinful person. But can I just tell you something? Whatever your passion is, my, my wife, for a period of time, used to like to do scrapbooking. And she would, you know, put family photographs in a book and, and journal and write about what was happening when and... And uh, for a number of reasons, she hasn't had a lot of time to devote to that kind of thing lately. But maybe, there, say there was a time in her life when we could have said, oh, this was her passion. Scrapbooking was her passion. Um, nothing sinful about that. 
But anything can take the place of God in our lives if we elevate it to that level. It doesn't have to be sinful. So when we experience the change that comes by being born again, we are no longer shaped or conformed by our self-centered nature and by the passions that characterized our life before that, passions tied to ignorance. Ignorance, and here ignorance means, does not mean head knowledge, what things that we don't know in our head, but ignorance means, uh, uh, it, it means moral blindness, moral blindness. Yes, please, thank you. So being born again brings us to a place where our life is changed. We are different from our former life. We are shaped not by a self-centered nature, but rather by a, a desire to please God. We are shaped not by passions and lusts that are allowed to run and rule our lives without any control. We're not shaped by ignorance, which is, which is a, a moral ignorance, but rather we are pursuing something different. What is that that we are pursuing? Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The born-again change, the born-again life looks like an obedient child, one who has an insatiable desire for learning God's will and God's ways, a life that is different from the former life, not characterized by a self-centered nature and desire, but rather a pursuit of holiness. You see, our exemplar, that's a word that we don't use too often, but it, but it fits my um, alliteration. Our exemplar is a holy exemplar. An exemplar is one who sets an example. Verse 15 again, as he who called you is holy. God is holy. Jesus is holy. He has called us unto holiness. He has given it to us as his edict. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In other words, this is, this is not something that is optional for us. It's not something that we can say, like, you buy, I've never bought a new car, but if you've ever bought a new car, um, I, I was with some friends not too long ago and riding in their car, and we were uh, complimenting their, their nice interior, and they had they bought a new car and purchased an upgrade on the interior. It was very beautiful. Well, when you buy a new car, you can buy extra packages and add-ons, and, and you can get, if you want, the extra super deluxe model. 
Can I just tell you kindly, friends, that holiness for us as Christians, that, that is not an optional add-on that makes us the extra deluxe supermodel Christian. All of us are called to the same thing. We're all called to the same level. We are called to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus Christ and to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice for him and to let him be our pattern. It is his edict for us. And this may not make sense, but he wants it for us in every area of our lives, in every area of our lives. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In all your conduct. On a wall near the main entrance to the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, is a portrait with the following inscription. James Butler Bonham. No picture, this is still part of the inscription. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. Can I just tell you that no literal portrait of Jesus exists, but the likeness of the Son of God through which we are able to be born again makes us free and can be seen, ought to be seen, in the lives of His true and faithful followers. We are called to be conformed to His image, and the change that takes place when we are born into His family will be a change that causes us to begin looking like Him, to be conformed more and more and more to the image of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ. This born-again change is what we are called to, not a life characterized by our former uh, ignorance, by following our former passions, not uh, a, a life characterized uh, like a, a disobedient child, but rather like an obedient child, a life lived in the pursuit of holiness. Amen. Let's stand together and bow our heads for prayer.